I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro Editor. And this is Fifth and Mission. A podcast where we dive into the biggest stories of the day. Today on Fifth and Mission, Aging Onto the Streets. A groundbreaking study has shown that nearly half of all homeless people over the age of 50 became homeless for the first time after their 50th birthday. Street counselors, researchers, and policymakers across the nation are alarmed and consider this a warning that our social safety net for older, low-income Americans has become so tattered that more and more seniors will be falling into the street in coming years. The study is based in Oakland. It's being conducted by UC San Francisco. The head researcher is Dr. Margot Cushell. She says the numbers reveal several key factors that are pushing older people out of their homes. Among these, wages that haven't kept up with inflation, skyrocketing rents, and the disappearance of pensions. Chronicle reporter Kevin Fagan wrote about this study, and today we're going to hear his interview with Dr. Cushell about what it all means and where the doctor thinks we should go from here. We'll have that interview right after this. Kevin Fagan covers homelessness for the Chronicle. Here's his interview with Dr. Margot Cushell of UC San Francisco, the lead researcher in a study about older people becoming homeless in the Bay Area. So, Margot, how did you come up with the idea of this study, this groundbreaking study that shows that nearly half of all people who are homeless, who are more than 50 years old, became homeless after 50? Yeah, I mean, I think I would have to go way back in time when I started studying homelessness in the late 1990s. We talked about homelessness as a problem of people in their 20s to mid 40s. And I'm a physician and take care of a lot of people who are homeless. And over the years, I started to notice just clinically, people look older, like these folks aren't aren't 40. I was taking care of people in the hospital or in my clinic who were a lot older than that. And I had the opportunity, um, gosh, about 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, to work with a fabulous colleague, Dr. Judy Hahn, where we realized that we had a series of studies that our team had done even before I started doing it, where we were looking at people who were homeless in San Francisco over the years. And we thought, well, why don't we look and see if there is actually a change? And when we did that story, um, it was published at the beginning of 2006. We compared people who had been homeless in the early 1990s, and we sort of had multiple different time points until 2003. And we found that in the early 1990s, only 11% of the people who were homeless in San Francisco were 50 or older. By the time we finished that study in 2003, was the last data we had, 37% were 15 older. And when we got that, we were sort of shocked, not shocked, because it, it confirmed what we had been just observing with our eyes. We called around to a bunch of colleagues throughout North America who we thought might have access to similar data, and they said, oh, we haven't really thought of doing this. They went and looked at their data, and they all found the same thing. So we knew we were onto something. I remember that very clearly because I wrote about that study, and it was an earthquake. It was it, the first time the mainstream uh, had paid attention. And that that research then led to what I believe was a, a, a growing awareness of the, of the aging of homeless people. And you then have taken it the next big step. 
Exactly. So so we were thrilled that you wrote about it because that got a lot of attention. And after that, some other colleagues um, looked and made this realization that looking through um, data from shelter data, they found that people born in the second half of the baby boom, about 1955 to, I'm sorry, 1955 to about 1964, seemed to have been homeless, more likely to be homeless than any other age range. So when that big population was in their 20s and 30s, people were 20s and 30s, and as that population is aged, the population is aged. But none of that answered the question, are these people who became homeless in their 20s and 30s and have just not been rehoused and have stayed alive to be older, or are these people who are becoming newly homeless at later ages, or is it a combination of both? And I, um, gosh, starting in 2007, started to submit grants to the National Institute of Health to study this phenomenon. It wasn't easy um, to convince them, but finally in 2012, here's where persistence pays off, um, they finally agreed to, to fund this study. And so we started this study in Oakland, and one of our real goals of the study, we had a lot of goals, but one of them was to answer this burning question that we had. What happens in people's lives to have them wind up to be homeless after 50? And is this something that happened to people who, you know, early in lives that stayed homeless the whole time, or is something that happened later in their lives. Now, I remember there was a lot of thought uh, and a lot of discussion about the big bubble of yes. the 80s when, when HUD got decimated by the Reagan administration and so many other social programs were, were gutted. Homelessness appeared as we know it. And, and the big bubble was moving through the python of time, so to speak. Um, you are finding something different than the big bubble now. This, we, have, we have progressed beyond the big bubble, it seems to me. Talk to me of that. Yeah, I would say when I talk to people about this, everyone comes back, and, and I wonder if you have the same experience. They say, oh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, they closed the mental hospitals. That's what mm-hmm. everyone says. And um, that is kind of true, although really the problem in my mind wasn't closing the mental hospitals. It was not opening the community services that were supposed to enter. But in a way, what we found was that is not the whole story in by any stretch of the imagination. And what we found was amongst people who are 50 and older and homeless, 44% of them had never been homeless before the age of 50. And and, and the mental illness incident is, is very low in that particular population, if I remember right. And in that population, those folks are very different than the folks who've been homeless from their 20s and 30s who are still homeless. And what we found is the folks who were homeless later in life, um, yeah, they have some depression now. They have their depression because they're out in the streets and they're not sleeping and they're terrified. But the, their mental health problems was not at all the reason why why they became homeless. These were folks who were the working poor, who were working um, their whole lives, often working two jobs or three jobs. And then they hit sort of older middle age, you know, in their early 50s and something happened. That something was usually one or two of a couple of things. They lost their job either because they just could no longer keep up with the hard physical work. Their bodies were worn down. They lost their job because their job was outsourced or something. Their spouse or partner lost their job. Their spouse or partner got sick. They got sick. Or their spouse or partner died or their parent died. We saw a lot of people who were living with mom and mom passed and they suddenly didn't have um, either the money or the rights to the house that they had lived in their whole lives. Now, the whole family aspect I found very fascinating because a lot of these folks couldn't go back and live with their family. Uh, But you also found that one good exit 
is when eventually after being homeless, they did go live with family. And, and a lot of counselors, street counselors will call that having been cooked. And they were ready to go, and both sides are ready to go. Talk, talk to me a little about why the multi-generational aspect is complicated. I think it is complicated, but I think this is another myth-busting. People have this idea that, gosh, if you're homeless, you must be homeless because you've lost all contact with your family. For some people, that's true. For many others, that's not true at all. And what we especially the older ones, the older ones, and I would say the older ones, and especially Black Americans, um, who are way overrepresented in the homeless um, population. And I think we really err by thinking, oh, people are disconnected from their family, or all we need to do is somehow, if we could just locate their family, it would all be fine. We've been really fascinated by the fact that many, many, many of the participants in our study are in close contact with their families. Many of them, in fact, um, stay with their families, so they might stay for part of the week and then come back to the street. And in fact, one of the most common exits from homelessness that we found was moving in with your family. We were so interested in this that we've done other research um, to sort of to sort of see what's going on. And what we found is that people are in close, many of them, not everyone, but many are in close contact with their families. Many families do want to take them in. Many of their families love them, want to take them in, but they themselves are really struggling. Mm-hmm. They're really hanging on by their fingernails. And I think this this conception that people are either homeless or they're not, or there's a sort of black sheep in the family who's homeless is really the wrong way to think about this. I think we need to think about families and families struggling and building on the family strength. And we found some really fascinating reasons why people are not moving in with their family. Some of it, when you think about it, is pretty obvious. Many of the families are really struggling, and having an extra person in the household really just tips them over the economic edge. But I think the other factors were things like these families are not only hanging on the economic edge, but they're living in just total fear of eviction. What strikes me about this is people, you say people are hanging on by their fingernails. This phenomenon does cut across all spectrums, economic spectrums, but it is, isn't it mostly a function of low-income folks who were not able to save, weren't able to buy property, they get older and boom. Exactly. This can happen to anyone, but it's just so much more likely to happen if you're low income. And really what we think about is people making what we call zero to 30% of the area median income. People living at the lower edges of income. Most of the folks in our study um, who who were these folks who became homeless late in life were working minimum wage jobs. Those jobs didn't have a lot of protections. They didn't have a pension. And it turns out when you're working a minimum wage job, you're spending every penny you have and more just to try to find housing, just to find try to eat. You're not saving up for your retirement. And what happens, the other thing is if you're working these jobs, these jobs are often very physically demanding. You know, it's one thing to be an attorney when you're 65 and you're sitting at a desk and you've probably had really good health care your whole life and have gone to the gym and have all these other advantages. If your whole life you've been poor and we know that poverty ages people prematurely um, and your job is really physically demanding, it may be unrealistic to expect that you're still working when you're 55 or 60 in those jobs, and then you're living on air. The problem is that these folks, their families are working those same minimum wage jobs often. And we're hearing from a lot of our folks like, 
I'm not going to go and move in with my niece, A, if that threatens her housing. Because what we're hearing from the family members is if I bring someone into my house and they're not on the lease, that's a reason for my landlord to evict me. We're hearing from the older folks, I don't want to move in there and be the person who's the reason that the kids in the house can't eat. Um, but I was been really struck by the, the role, the fear of the landlord. And for some of these families, they're in subsidized housing where there are a lot of rules about who is or who isn't allowed to live with you when you have a housing subsidy. For others of these families, they're not in subsidized housing, but they are just frightened to be evicted. This 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 reminds me of Matt Desmond's evicted yes. book, uh, which and I know Matt pretty well, and he's boy he he cut to the same kind of core that you did, and and one thing that really impressed me in in your research and in your analysis of your research is is the uh, the widespread societal factors that went into this. We're talking about the income inequality, the inability of generations to move up, so you have families of poor people who are aging who are unable to move up themselves and be able to take care of the older people, the, the minimum wages that have not kept pace, the affordable housing that has not kept pace. Now, that went beyond the scope of what you were uh, uh, studying specifically, but you still made some very pointed observations about that. What, what did you take away from this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we tend to look at homelessness as like, oh, this is a problem of mental health and substance use. And I would want to remind everyone, as I, maybe I say this as a physician, but we actually know how to treat mental health and substance use, and that doesn't equal homelessness. And I think by saying that and by pushing on that, that is not to say that many people who are homeless don't have those struggles and that we don't need to make the systems work for them. But I think it does take away um, perhaps our collective responsibility for this mess. One thing that I wanted to point out here is that um, this is considered a national problem. Yes. This study you did was Northern California based, but I heard from other researchers that this they're seeing this reflected all around. We, Even though in the Bay Area we have you know high super high housing costs, the highest in the nation, and uh, an income disparity that's terrible, why does this happen across the United States? I think it happens across the United States because the underlying issues are common to us all. There's no question we have it worse here because our housing costs are so high, but we are not the only ones struggling with a generation that doesn't have savings, that doesn't have pension. The affordable Did housing crisis is worse here, but it's true throughout the country, and those who are 50 and older are, are at some of the highest risk of paying way high percentage of their income for rent. That's a national problem. Didn't we learn during the recent government? shutdown that 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck? Exactly. And living paycheck to paycheck, another way of saying that is you're one step away from homelessness. Um, and or at least ruin. Or at least ruin. And so we are seeing, um, you know, we are seeing this nationally. We're seeing the aging patterns nationally. We're seeing the disproportionate representation of black Americans nationally. None of this is specific to the Bay Area. Yeah. What steps would you recommend our country to take to address this? I think it's really important for people to realize that um, since the 1980s, we've had a massive disinvestment in affordable housing by the federal government. And it's been relatively quiet. I've heard figures such as what we what the federal government 
currently spends in affordable housing is about 30% in, in sort of adjusted dollars to what they used to spend in the 1970s. Yes, I've heard that as well. That's, that is at the base of this problem. This, is, this problem always lands on the laps of mayors and city council members. And in some ways, I have empathy for them because I'm not sure that it's really in their control to completely fix. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be trying. But, um, but I also think we need to escalate this to the state and the federal level. The feds are really the ones who got out of this. I think we need to think a little bit about what we mean by um, sort of the, the, the changing our thinking about pensions, that so many people now work in jobs without benefits, without pensions. Um, and Social Security does not cut it. A huge proportion of the folks in our study are on Social Security. Yeah. Social Security doesn't even begin to pay for people's needs. Social Security has not kept up with, um, with the cost of living, and, and that's even worse in a high-cost area. And I think we need to think about and have a real conversation about income inequality. You know, the Bay Area is sort of in some ways ground zero of income inequality, but it's a problem across the country. Yeah, I was uh, learning, and I, I've known this for quite some time, that if you wanted to have a uh, minimum wage that equaled what you could buy in 1970, it would have to be about $19 That's an cool. hour now instead of seven twenty-five, which is the federal minimum. That just doesn't square up with being able to survive or, right. or save any money. Right. And then we are sort of shocked, shocked, shocked that they're tents lining our our cities. And I think that, um, you know, what we can't do is see those tents and blame the individual. First of all, it's wrong. But secondly, it's not going to get us to a solution. And empirically, if you look at it, this problem is going to get worse before it gets better, don't you think? It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I mean, first of all, um, demographics right now are not on our side. This bubble is still growing. And um, I just saw some startling statistics nationally about the year-over-year increase in people who are homeless and over 62 nationally is just stunning. Um, but also, you know, housing is going to take a long time to build. And I'm not sure that we're seeing policies. In fact, a lot of what we're seeing at the federal level are probably going in the opposite direction of where it needs to go. I think as a physician, we spend a lot of our training trying to, to learn what is the problem and how do you get the right solution to the problem and what is the underlying problem. If someone has chest pain, we don't give them pain medicine for their chest. We're trying to figure out are they having a heart attack and you're not going to help them if you try to just treat their chest pain and not recognize, huh, maybe they're having a heart attack. I think here we're not going to treat this problem without recognizing that we can't fix it without a massive investment in deeply affordable housing. And really, it's, it can happen to anyone, but we need to be focusing on those most at risk, which is those who make 0 to 30% of the area median income, those in deepest poverty. Well, a lot of people would say you know, why make the government fix it? Why can't the private industry, why can't the private sector fix this by raising wages, by building housing that's more affordable? As a social scientist for decades, what do you think it is about the American character that lets this exist? Because this is a horror. I mean, I think I think it is a horror. Um, I think we live in a very individualistic country. You know what? I don't want to say that people have no responsibility for their lives. Of course they do. But I think um, to not look at the underlying structural problems. Well, there is a an American character of you know pulling yourself by your bootstraps, striding your own stride, that kind of thing. And a lot of counselors I've talked to, street counselors over the, across the country, say the first thing that comes out a lot of uh, younger homeless people's mouths is they want a job. Yeah. They want a house and they want a job, but they want to take care of themselves. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Clinton used to say 
you know, it should be a place where if you work hard and play by the rules, things will be okay. How is it that we have let things metastasize as a country that you can play by the rules, earn minimum wage, and things are not okay? Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. One one of the things that um, is really striking t- um, to me when we um, talk to the folks experiencing this is how much people who are experiencing homelessness have internalized those messages. I will listen. We will t- ask people to tell about their whole lives, and I will listen and think, wow, you never had it chance. I mean, there's this horrifying quote we had from someone who was talking about losing his housing when he was in his, I think, late 50s. And he was talking and, you know, we sort of had the tape reporter playing and was talking about what had unfolded in his life. And he was saying that his company had been bought, his work hours had been cut back to 20 hours a week. And he tells the story with no sort of comment or no, he didn't, he said, you know, it's kind of hard to pay your bills when you go from working 80 to 100 hours a week to 20 hours a week, it's kind of hard to pay the bills. With and no I benefit. Fade, I fell behind in my rent. Um, and what was striking to me is he didn't seem to find anything odd about the fact that he was working in his 50s, 80 to 100 hours a week in order to pay for his housing. And he felt very guilty that he, first of all, wanted to keep working, but his hours were cut back and he was like trying to budget. But, you know, if you're being paid minimum wage um, and your rent keeps going up, it just is sort of a zero-sum game. And I've been struck by how much people blame themselves in mm. situations where I'm looking at it from a hole and I'm thinking, gosh, you never had a chance. <laughs> I've met very few people in my time who really wanted to be homeless. Yeah, People don't want to sleep outside in the dirt. Yeah. That's just that's not what it is. One thing that I wanted to, to hear from, uh, from you is about your amazing team. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with, with Claudia, Pam, John, Stephen – uh, as they did this research, and it's it's exhaustive. Pam is a, used to be a uh, an investigator, and she would we went with her to shanty towns where she went, you know, hut to hut, tent to tent, really looking hard for people because homeless people can be very hard to track. They don't, you know, leave PO boxes. <laughs> it's yeah, it's tough. And and your guys do a lot of hard work. I am I am so incredibly, unbelievably lucky um, to work um, with my team and um, with my other researcher colleagues like um, Dr. Kelly Knight and Dr. Margaret Henley and others who are doing um, this work um, with me. Um, and they put their whole hearts into this. I think one of the reasons why it took me five years to get to convince the NIH to fund this is um, they were skeptical. They were skeptical that we could follow up with people who were homeless. And I'm really proud to say that our rates of follow-up, we see our study participants to re-interview them every six months. They are not that far off from what we see in famous studies like the Physician's Health Studies or the Nurse's Health Studies, mm-hmm. um, but it takes extra effort. Um, my team, you know, we are a community-based study. We don't work at the university. We don't work at a hospital. Um, we worked for the first bunch of years at St. Mary's Center, which is a fabulous organization in West Oakland that works with indigent older adults. Um, now Long-time we, great center. Long 
longtime yeah. great center. Now we have space in a building that is sort of owned by Lifelong Medical Care, a really phenomenal um, organization that provides uh, medical care for folks. Um, we work at a, in a church out of East Oakland. Um, we have these incredible spaces that are in the community and non-threatening to folks. And really our secret sauce is the first time we meet people, we ask them to tell us everything that they can about how we could find them. And we really get as much info as we can. You do what I do as a reporter. Yeah, it's very it, similar. Finding homeless people and keeping in touch with them is enormously difficult. One thing that struck me about your, your crew is they're not acting as social workers, no. but they are sympathetic and they are yeah. helpful yeah. and they cared for these folks as human beings, which I interpreted, it, it seemed to me, that was a big reason why folks came back to them. We talk a lot as a team, and we talk to our study participants. They are not research subjects. They're study participants, and they they are giving us the gift of their time and their wisdom and their life stories, and we really appreciate that. We are not social workers. This study is what's called an observational study. We're not supposed to be doing things to make people better, although I truly believe that the act of being listened to is an intervention, is a Huge. help thing in itself. People need and want to tell their stories. And there uh, were little little kindnesses that helped. Socks. Your team gives out socks yes. and chewy bars and and yes. and paying attention. That's yes. a lot of it. It, it. Giving someone the dignity of a few yeah. moments of your time. You know, one of the moments that's just really poignant is um, as our first five years of funding were winding down, we got funded for another five years. We weren't sure if the study was going to be able to com- uh, continue, but people had completed what we had said that they would complete. And we printed out certificates, sort of like graduation certificates, nothing fancy, but as an acknowledgement that folks had stayed in the study, had really done what we had asked them to do. Do. And a lot of the participants had tears in their eyes. They said, like, no one ever, no one ever praises me for what I do. And I did something and they did do something. It's only through the participants' willingness to share their stories and their life history were we able to hear this. My Everyone st- I talked to who participated in your study was enormously proud of those certificates. Yeah. So many of our participants were the men and women who were sort of cleaning your office, who were working at the auto shop, who were doing all of these really important jobs. Um, and and then they just got a raw end of the deal. Yeah, these jobs... You used to be able to make a decent living and raise a family on jobs like that, and that has become less so, and your study is one of many reflections of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we need to realize that our policies and our conversations about a living wage, about pensions, about affordable housing – These are not abstract conversations. These decisions that we make as a a body politic have really important um, decisions, and and this is the result of making bad decisions, or at least in my opinion, bad decisions. What do you think is going to be happening over the next five years of your study? Because you've just finished five years, you're now embarking on another five years. What do you expect to see at the end of five, uh, the next five years? You know, right now we're really interested in how people are managing, what the outcomes are, how people get housed, um, and how people sort of connect with their family. We're also very interested on the toll that homelessness takes on people's bodies. Um, You know, I do come to this as a physician, so I'm very interested in that. We're looking a lot at um, how people age. We know we found from the first five years that being poor and eventually winding up homeless um, ages your body. At 50, you're, you're more resembling 
someone who's 75 or 80. Exactly. That has huge implications because we're not asking 80-year-olds to carry boxes and work in a warehouse. And yeah. that's what's sort of falling apart. We underestimate what a profoundly, profoundly disorienting experience homelessness is. And it turns out that when you house people, that reverses. Yeah. And it, you think about how we nurture children. We nurture yeah. people to become better selves. And even at an older age, you, you go into a, a destructive, toxic environment like being homeless in the street. It unnurtures you. Yeah. It's really, it is like bizarro world. If you try to think of, you know, we, we talk a lot in medicine about like creating healthy environments. I could think of almost no environments that were less healthy than being homeless. Margo, thank you so much for joining us here at The Chronicle to talk about your groundbreaking study, which I found absolutely fascinating and very important. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. That was Chronicle staff writer Kevin Fagan and Dr. Margo Cushell of UC San Francisco. Thanks to them for joining us and to you for listening. To read Kevin's piece, it's called Aging Onto the Streets on sfchronicle.com. I'm Damian Bolwa, and this is Fifth and Mission. Thanks for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.